This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast, or In Me for short. This is part two of my conversation with Dr. Lee. I pick up where I left off in that conversation with a story from high school about an experience I had shopping at my local stop and shop. So when I got to stop and shop, I pull out the envelope. They were food stamps. And I was looking around. I'm like, man, I'm about to pay for something with food stamps. And I remember hearing all the jokes about food stamps. Mm -hmm. And so that's when, for me, it was like, okay, our money situation ain't right. However, I then learned later on in life that there are tiers to this. There are levels to your money situation not being right. When I started coaching basketball and I went into the homes of some of my players, I said, oh, there are levels to this. Yes. I'm thinking about education right now Mm. and am wondering how your socioeconomic status impacted your access to schools that were considered to be good. My elementary school, I just went to a local, um, probably pretty average elementary school. And then for my middle school, I went to, I was identified as a strong student. And so I ended up being qualified to go to a specific prep school. It's not, anyway, a preparatory school. I forget what Richardson was called, but it wasn't in my district. It wasn't a middle school that I would go to. It was this more smaller school that I got to go because I was identified as a strong kid. And so that's where I went to middle school. So if you had stayed in your local school, it wasn't as strong of a school as the one you went to, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was smaller all around. Yeah, for sure. And then high school, high school was a local high school, but I was in the IB program. I was in the honors program. Yeah. Put me on a different track uh, for high school, even though it was the same local high school. I was a separate group of kids that was coming up in that school. And so what I'm hearing here is high intelligence was a saving grace for you in your upward mobility. You had access to different opportunities because you were really smart. Wrong. I'm not smart. I was never a kid that's... Oh, come on now. No, I'm serious. You were identified as gifted. You're still very bright, by the way. I regard you that way. You you can say whatever you want. (laughs) I don't believe you. La, 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 la. I'm kidding. Go ahead. Um, Education did not come easy for me. It never did. But I I worked hard. And that is something that I will will acknowledge. And if people think I'm bragging, I will. I had to compensate for the things that I wasn't good at. And that means studying. I had to study a lot. And, um, you know, I have friends who have photographic memory. They read one thing once and they remember it. I'm not that kid. I had to take notes. I had to do flashcards. I had to like, just, I had to, I had to grind it. I had to memorize so much and put myself through that just because I wasn't, things didn't just come to me naturally. Um, psychology did. I, I, I think um, some of the psychological stuff came a little bit more naturally to me than like your STEM and other things. So, you know, my family wanted me to go into medicine and I knew very early on, I didn't have the brains for it. Right. And I remember what I said, success is an option. Failure wasn't not when the whole family's putting in to make this work. So I had that conversation with my dad and said, I I can't go pre-med. I can't, there's, I can't, the road is too long. I don't think I have the brains for it. I don't think I like it. But psychology is something that I'm now exposed to because the mentors that I had, 
that I think I have some confidence in, and I think I can get there in about four to five years. So when I chose psychology, it was a very much calculated by our socioeconomic status, what was all writing on it, and I needed to get that degree as soon as I can so I can start working. That was what was in my thinking. So when I apply for my graduate program, it was a five-year program. You get your master's along the way, but you keep going. Yeah. Right. Because I don't want to waste any time. Your average third grader or fifth grader even isn't like, I need to use note cards and do this and that in order to study. So I'm wondering how you learn to be a good student. Gosh, that's such a good question. You know, I think my family, I, I, my, my parents, my sisters have always, even when we were in Taiwan, school was always important in our family. And so I think I just had those early um, skills that were built. Um, and don't forget, I was also learning English. You know, when I came at 10, I was starting with the alphabet and I had a spelling list every week you know, spelling words of the week. And I would drill those in my mind and study, put them in a sentence. And then I'll get quizzed at the end of the week. My family would quiz, my sister would quiz me, my dad would quiz me. Studying hard was the way it had always had to be because I not only had to learn the, the concepts, I had to learn the, the, the language. So you keep making reference to hard work. I'm thinking hustle. And not hustle in a bad way, like you are out, you know, selling on the corner or whatever. But um, you were about putting the extra time in and working really hard, as hard as you could work. Was that precipitated by your recognition of your money situation, family dynamic, what they might be feeling as a result of being newcomers to this country? Yeah, I think it was more about the family situation, but the uh, it was less about the money situation, but more the family situation. Right. I, I think growing up, I wasn't always caught up in the in in the in the money because I wasn't paying the bills, right? <laughs> growing up, I, somebody else's mom and dad were managing that. I was more about um, look at what my family has been willing to do to make things work here in the states, and my only job is to be a student. I need to at least do that well. Um, and seeing my father's struggle, seeing my siblings struggle and all that my mom had to do to, 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 to bring us over. It was a little bit of, um, kind of owing it to them perhaps, um, and making folks proud. And when we, when my father decided to leave Taiwan, um, there was a lot of naysayers, um, folks that didn't believe in it, thought he was crazy. My mom's family was quite upset, right? Taking their, their sibling out to this foreign land with the kids, people were not sure this was going to work. Um, and I think that was part of it. I didn't want anybody to to look back or look at us with judgment or judgment of my dad. The best compliment to just round out the story is when my aunt and uncle eventually said, you know, your father's decision to come to the States might've been hard, but was the right thing for you kids. And I think when when we started to hear comments like that, it was like, all right, we did it. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. OK, what dad was envisioning, we we made it happen. And all the people that doubted dad and us were good. <laughs> we're good. You and I share that in common. Making my dad proud has been um, a driver in my life. 
I wear his ring. So now, you know, if I haven't shared that before, um, I took it off of his finger on his deathbed. And I'm often referencing conversations that I had with my dad around education and making the most out of myself. He passed away in 2003. And I talk about him still every day. And I remember in high school with peer pressure and people drinking, uh, smoking, doing all sorts of stuff. I'm like, I don't have that option. <laughs> I One... It's not going to be good. I'm not going to get grounded when I get home. Grounding is not a thing in my culture. My father's going to whoop my ass. And number two, I want to honor him. I don't want him to ever look at me and say, how dare you walk into my home drunk or high? So it was never an option for me to do any of that. Um, And I wonder how much of that relates to like a recognition on my part that he did a lot for me to be in a certain position and he wanted Mm. so much for me for sure and i think about your dad and my dad and that they must have somehow believed in us right like that we were gonna figure it out and here we are and here we are speaking of family when you go back to your family so you went to california recently is it seamless for you to interact with your family now that you have a phd you're in a different financial bracket And so I asked the question because I do a lot of code switching with my family. So depending on who I'm talking to, if it's a cousin who graduated from college, I am I'm staying in this lane. If it's a relative who did not go to college, I tone it down. I think about what topics I bring up to make sure there's an entry point for people. There are gymnastics going on as I'm interacting with folks. Um, at family gatherings. And that's not to say I think I'm better. It's just I never want to make anybody feel as though they have to be anybody but who they are. Do you end up feeling any of that when you're around family? For my my family, it is seamless in that um, I think I regress a little bit when I go back to mom's house. (laughs) You know, I'm the youngest of four. So I very quickly go right back into that youngest sister mode they're for me a little bit they're checking in on me i live it up when i'm home <laughs> mom's asking what i want to eat instead of you know uh, so to me that's a really good transition for me i've also learned along the way that um it's important that my family feels that they can take care of me and i say that because we've talked about it you know um when i go home and we go out to eat or something, my sisters are quick to pick up the bill. I can do it. I can pay for it now, but they're quick to pick it up because that's what sisters do. That's what older sisters do. Um, And I think when all of us are within our role, it's just a lot more comfortable for everyone. There are other ways that I help my family out financially, but that's very separate and different than when I go home and visit them. You know, when I go home and visit them, I'm I'm back to younger sister. um, They can take me out And, you know, I get to pick whatever we're having for dinner, um, but fun things like that. So as we close out, and I'm happy you had a good time with your family and all, um, and you're still on vacation, but I'm going to ask you to wear your professional hat right now. So um, you're a clinical psychologist now, and I promised that we would come back to that. And you're very much aware of how environment impacts human development. In what ways would you say growing up poor impacts adults? Well, I answer in two parts. How do I think I impact students or kids and then adults? 
I think it's not just about socioeconomic status, but how your socioeconomic status is explained to you. And so when I think about how I understood our, our money situation was how my dad explained it, right? And the way he explained it was, we're okay. We weren't, right? Um, relatively speaking, but the way he let his children feel was that we have a roof over our shoulder. We should be thankful for that. We always have food. We have to get creative from time to time about different things, but we're okay. So I never felt like it was off, but that just different. But it does remind, it does teach me uh, importance of money, importance of saving, and that it's a very, uh, money's a very real thing and that people can treat you differently depending on if they think you have money or not. I think it's about how you frame it for the kids. And then growing up, it's how other frame it, other people frame it to you. So I'll be more concrete. You and I work in an institution um, that sometimes we're wanting to reach out to, to students of need. And I always tell people this, the students of need are not the students who are always going to be asking for, for stuff because we're brought to be thankful for what we have. We are brought to be creative with what we have. We're brought to, believe, you know, to have pride and, to, and so much so that sometimes we don't ask, even if we should. You know, I remember working with several families of need and letting them know that, you know, we can pay for X, Y, and Z, and they insist that we don't. And you need to respect that because they need to be able to feel in control of their money situation and feel pride in that. And I tie it to my, my, my own siblings. When I go home, can I pay for that meal? Yes. Is it going to be easier for me to pay for that meal than my sister? Yes. But it's important that she picks up that bill. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it's important for me to not publicly fight her for that bill or to go back and leave her money on the side or like that would do more harm for our relationship and for her feeling about herself. So to being careful not to impose what we think the money situation is on other people and what it means. That's really interesting. I'm fascinated by this. So what you're positing here is that it's not so much poverty that impacts the psyche. It is how you experience that poverty, how it's relayed to you. Is that correct? Yes. Do I believe that having more access to opportunities to things and experiences will impact your psyche? Of course, right? Like, I'm not saying that that doesn't matter. But what I am saying is, emotionally, how you experience your socioeconomic status, I think it really depends on how you understand it and how um, how you see it. And that somebody might think I'm poor, but I, if I don't think I'm poor, who's to, who's to define that, right? Yeah. Yeah. To impose experiences on an economic bracket. And I always tell people, money Having money does not keep you immune to mental health issues. You can be as rich as they come. You can still be depressed. You can still be anxious. You can still be, right? Money is, is money. But how you experience yourself, your, your world, how you relate to other people, that's a whole other related but separate. My follow-up question to that is, I'm thinking about like a person in their mid-20s who does not know how to manage money and is making poor decision after poor decision, 
the science appears to say that growing up in dire circumstances impacts regions of the brain that are tasked with decision-making. And so that leads to people making bad decisions, like buying too many sneakers when they need milk and food. And, and so you understand the spirit of my question. So you would maintain that, yeah, it's what was conveyed to that person over time that impacted those regions of the brain as opposed to sheer poverty. Yes, that's what I'm suggesting. When you travel the world and you see how people live in different ways um, and you understand that happiness comes in all different forms and it's not just about socioeconomic status. Okay, so you're an educator, whether it's a teacher, guidance counselor, whoever, a student comes to you and they're struggling with just this idea that others have more than them. Like, ah, I, I don't, I'm feeling bad about myself because I don't have as much as Greg next door, my friend group. They're able to do things that I can't do. Meanwhile, my mom's working countless hours. Uh, dad is working overtime as well, so I don't really see my family. How should an educator support a student in that situation? Twofold. One is I would validate what they're feeling. Acknowledge, appreciate that that is how they're feeling about their money situation as you relate to themselves and friends, but also folks at home. So validating that. And then the second thing is I'm going to ask them to expand their timeline, expand their vision. You may not have it now. It doesn't mean that you may not have it later. Part of what you're investing in education is the potential of having it later. What you're investing is your earning potential, right? In some ways, is what we're saying. Validating how they feel and also inviting them to think about the long game. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Lee. And um, you kind of took the bait there. That was a dope response. Um, I like the idea of validating what the student has to say before weighing in. What I thought you were going to say is validate and then play them juicy. <laughs> Super Nintendo Sega Genesis. <laughs> All right. Dr. Lee, thank you so much. Oh, my goodness. Thank time. you. No problem. Always insightful. Um, enjoy your day. And I look forward to reconnecting in person soon. This is going to be a longer closing than usual. Dr. Lee's thought at the end conjured a lot of thoughts for me. A child's money situation isn't the driver for feelings of inadequacy that arise in some adults later in life. It's the messaging we receive about our circumstances that are consequential. I felt that perspective acutely. Having lesser means doesn't mean that another person means less. I would also add that an under-resourced community isn't worth less than a community that's resource abundant. Who's defining what's valuable at the end of the day? For instance, for several years, I lived in the inner city of Boston, specifically Dorchester and Mattapan. I have mostly fond memories of living there. On a warm day, kids on the block were outside playing all sorts of games like stickball and basketball. Instead of playing with a conventional bat and baseball, we played with discarded wooden planks and tennis balls. We didn't have hoops either. Instead, we went to the local corner store and asked for empty milk crates so that we could cut out the bottom to make it a basketball hoop. We used raw materials to make a backboard and nailed the crate to it. And then we had a basketball game. Basically, we learned how to be resourceful. We developed social skills in the process too. You'll never hear that narrative about my experience growing up in the inner city though. Why is that? Until the next episode of In Me, 
keep reflecting. Identity and the Identity and